Good morning, church. It is so good to be with you all this morning. Uh, what a privilege and an honor. I thank your pastor, uh, Reverend Dr. Glenn Miles, for the invitation. I never, ever take an invitation to offer a meditation on the Word of God uh, for granted. It is a holy and sacred honor, and I appreciate you allowing me the privilege of reflecting with you on this scripture. Uh, I thank you for an amazing congregation uh, in two locations that serves God in amazing ways. Uh, and so thank you for everything that you do for the larger church. Um, I am appreciative especially that we are out here in a tent. You will note in my sermon that this is a great place, reminding us of that childhood um, song, the church is not a steeple, the church is the people. Although I must say in this moment, the church is the people and the incredible musicians. And we've finally gotten to the point where we need to say the church is the people and the amazing technology <laughs> guide. Thank you so much. <coughs> I bring you greetings on behalf of the Christian Church in Ohio and our moderator, Reverend Dr. Alicia Evans-Hayes. Uh, she is a magnificent leader that is leading our church uh, in this important time of visioning for the future. Uh, I bring you greetings from the Reverend Teresa Hort Owens, our general minister and president. If you do not know Teresa Hort Owens, you need to get to know her. She will be leading us through our general assembly this next weekend, as uh, Mary Kate said. Um, she's wildly busy at this moment, so I'm sure she's not on live stream. <coughs> Excuse me. But I know she would want me to bring you her greetings. Um, she is uh, one of those leaders that is just right for this moment in history, in large part because she brings the wisdom of multiple worlds to work in the church. She was for many years a corporate uh, business person uh, in, in high levels in the corporate world. So she brings a business sense. And I don't know about you, but we need a church that understands business better than a lot of our churches do. She also brings the heart of a local church pastor. She was a local church pastor for several years uh, and helped that congregation become open and affirming. And so she brings the heart of a pastor. But she also was on the campus of the University of Chicago at their divinity school. So she brings an academician's mind in addition uh, to understanding the larger church now as our general minister and president. So I hope you hold her in prayer. She will be up for re-election for another six-year terms. Uh, this next weekend, and one of the things uh, that we will be looking at uh, in uh, the General Assembly will be reshaping the way we do church, on a general level at least, for uh, the 21st century. Uh, and so she will have some challenges to, to help us move more nimbly and more faithfully into the future. So I appreciate that. Um, well, without further ado, let us dive into meditating on our scripture for today, and I invite you to be with me in a word of prayer. Gracious and loving God, we pray that the words of my mouth and indeed the meditations of all of our hearts might not simply be acceptable to you, but might give you great delight because you 
O God, our, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I remember the first time I drove a car that had a passenger side rear view mirror that had the phrase lightly printed on it, objects in the mirror are closer than they appear. It didn't take long for me to figure out what that meant, but I do remember feeling a bit miffed initially. I resisted some far-off automobile designer distorting what I saw and preventing me from seeing clearly what actually was beside and behind me on the road. They were taking my sense of agency away from me. How dare they do that? Of course, eventually I would learn that this minor distortion of what was in the car's blind spot and po would pro potentially prevent an accident and may even prevent someone else's death. On more than one occasion in my own driving history, I believe a great deal of heartache was avoided because of the alteration of that reflection in the mirror. I thank God now that someone out there was smart enough to figure out how to help me see more that was beside and behind me. What is critical to this, of course, is that one knows and accommodates for the distortion. Thus the need for the printed words on the mirror. If one knows that what one is observing that it is not a precise representation, then one's mind can accommodate for it. You can, you can adjust one's behaviors because you know that, that this is a distortion. We find a greater distortion but equally positive intention in those really heavily concave mirrors that are in hallway corners and stairwells. You know, I don't know about you, but when I look at those, I can barely make out the details in it. But you know, I can see enough in those big round mirrors to make myself safer because of it. So thank God for those kinds of distortions in our world. But not all of our distortions are meant for good and worthy ends. Sadly, we live, and I don't need to tell this congregation this, we live in a societal, political, and even religious environment right now where carefully crafted distortions of facts, reality, and now even imagery are being used for malicious purposes, for personal gain, and for selfish glory, rather than for the betterment of humanity and the common good. Quite often people, either unknowingly or willfully, believe that that which is the altered reality is the actual reality. And the consequences of this delusion can rarely, if ever, be good. Now, I know, I know there's a whole lot to unpack in that imagery that I just went through. So take a deep breath, and I'm sorry I went through that so fast. 
But what I'm most interested in as a faith leader, particularly, and here's the bureaucratic name for it, as a middle judicatory leader, woo, gotta love that. What I'm most interested in this is helping individuals and communities like yours recognize when we are observing the world around us and most especially what is behind us, that is our past, to better be able to know what is accurate and trustworthy and what is distortion. Further, I want to help church people know whether the distortions they encounter are meant for good or for ill. Because both are happening. Further, I believe the mainline Protestant church of the late 20th and early 21st century, the only vantage point from which I can speak authentically, has a significant problem as we look in our rearview mirrors at what is behind us and around us in distinguishing between a faithful and honest understanding and a distorted and altered understanding. And because far too many of us are making big decisions based on not realizing much of what we are observing in our rearview mirrors is only partial or, or is misshapen. And thus we risk losing incredible gains, gifts, and graces in the church unnecessarily. And likewise, and perhaps more importantly, we miss addressing our faults and our failures and therefore the ability to learn from and transform the sins of the church's past for a better future. I'll go off script for a moment. One of the things that has distorted, uh, disturbed me the most are congregations that are in despair and need to evaluate what has happened that has brought them to the place of, of, of fragility and going immediately to the decision to close rather than learning from the past and maybe doing something different that would bring new life and new energy and new vision to them. It is a, a huge weight on my heart and soul. But let's now turn from my, my mirror imagery, my mirror metaphor to Scripture. In the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus was asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God was coming, Jesus answered, the kingdom of God is not coming with things that can be observed, nor will they say, look, look, here it is, or, or, or there it is. For in fact, the kingdom of God is among you. These two verses come amongst several stories and sayings by Jesus and precede a fairly ominous description of the coming of God's reign suddenly after much suffering. Jesus' use of the imagery of kingdom, which is fairly frequent in the gospel, often confounds those listening because he clearly does not want to reinforce the exclusive, oppressive, and often violent ways of the kingdoms of our world and human monarchies. But rather, he is trying to confront and transform their and our understandings of how God is at work in the world. I liken this to the imagery Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in seeking the beloved community. 
Reverend Harold Monroe, who was a predecessor of mine as a regional minister, fondly nicknamed Camp Christian as the Beloved Community. And if you know more about his image of that being the first camp in the state of Ohio, religious or otherwise, to allow African Americans and white folks to worship and play and serve alongside each other, then you know why Harold Monroe wanted to use MLK's language very intentionally. We forget that. And similarly, when I pray the Lord's Prayer, and you may have heard me, uh, Mary-Kate, whenever it was on the screen, I frequently use the word commonwealth instead of kingdom, attempting to, to get me to think a little bit differently about how Jesus saw kingdom and how we see kingdom. In recent years, there's been a subtle but... I think, powerful movement by progressive people of faith to say kingdom, K-I-N-D-O-N, kingdom, rather than kingdom. It's so close in sound that it seems less jarring, but still has profound depth. This clever shift in language is what the Christian Church Disciples of Christ is doing with our theme for the General Assembly. And that theme is the kingdom of God within us and among us. In the notes of her essay on solidarity and the love of neighbor, Cuban-American theologian Ada Maria Isasi-Diaz writes, The concept of kingdom in our world today is both hierarchical and elitist. The word kingdom makes it clear that when the fullness of God becomes a day-to-day -day reality, we will all be brothers and sisters, kin to each other. I really like that turning of the power of dynamics of kingdom topsy-turvy. It's not unlike Mary in Scripture when learning she is to give birth to the Christ child, singing, God has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. That's what we're talking about when we talk about kingdom of God. And while I'm disturbed at how quickly the Christian faith historically ignored the true understanding of Christ's meaning of the reign of God as being countercultural and intent on transforming oppressive systems, I'm not surprised at all, and, and none of us should be, because even in the Gospels, the blessed disciples who were following him, they couldn't get it right. Whenever Jesus started talking about this kingdom, they started vying for the seats next to the throne. They, they, were, they were confused too. And we definitely ought not be surprised when the Roman emperor Constantine claims Christianity as his sign of victory in battle in 312 CE, letting loose the juggernaut of church-promoting power over others. So zoom ahead 1,700 years, and by the 1950s, modern Christianity had become quite comfortable with its power, being firmly established in the center of the world, at least the, the, the white mainline Protestant world of mid-century America, and thus the church became complacent with the way things were, even if what we showed off and claimed was an illusion. That is the way of power, my friends. Power over others clings to comfort and complacency, even at great cost to others. 
And so this is where my metaphor, that rearview mirror, and the scripture comes back together. It is my belief that most churches are still looking in their rearview mirror and seeing a distorted image of what they believe is fact. Some are looking back at the glory days when a fairly non-self-reflective, predominantly white, mainline Protestant church was the law of the land. But now they believe that is the way it should be today. And that, that somehow the current decline in numbers, the drop in giving, the increase in the average age and exhaustion of leaders, and the increase in cost of facilities that were built so ubiquitously in the late 1940s, 50s, and 60s is a sign that the church of Jesus Christ is in crisis and near death. I am here to tell you today something different. While I steadfastly call the church to an honest assessment of its current situation, I'm not trying to gloss over the problems. Believe me, I know them in detail, and I can give them to you if you want. I maintain this is an incorrect reading of the facts. While all of those indicators may be true, there is a very different way of reading them than the chicken little sky is falling whales that we are hearing everywhere. There's a whole series of YouTube videos by some Yahoo out there claiming to understand what is happening in the Christian church, disciples of Christ, and by extension, the United Church of Christ, um, is completely due to our stupidity. Okay, sorry, I'm very angry about that. What might, in fact, be taking place is a much-needed, long-overdue, and necessary winnowing of the aspects of Christianity that were never healthy, that were never in alignment with the mission and ministry of Jesus Christ. What we might be seeing in and around us is a rightful reclaiming of the powerful and radical vision of Jesus Christ that was more about confronting those in power than coddling up to them. That was more about scattering the proud in the thoughts of their hearts and filling the hungry with good things and sending the rich away than trying to fill the pews on Sunday morning and worrying about fulfilling the jot and tittle of the church constitution and bylaws. <laughs> sorry. Being outdoors has got me like in a little weird space, so sorry about that. <laughs> in the Gospel of John chapter 15 that you heard read, Jesus makes this vital process clear, although he's using another image, so sorry about the mixed metaphors, but clear to his followers, followers when he states, I am the vine and God is the vine grower. God removes every branch that bears fruit he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. I know this sounds harsh. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be superficial here, but someone needs to say it. Much of what is happening in the church is not a decline of the church, but a necessary reckoning of the church. We are being pruned so that we might bear the fruit of Christ's true ministry to a world that needs, wants, and hungers for what Christ has to offer and the church has failed to provide. If you're a gardener, you know pruning is never easy. 
Because you're not just cutting off the dead stuff, you're cutting off some other stuff that is quite alive, but it just is not what the church, I'm sorry, the plant needs in that moment. It's the difference between striving to be the powerful kingdom and living into being better kinfolk. While some pine for the pure church of 1954, maybe we should finally admit that that church did not work for many people. It didn't work for women, for people of color, for those who were differently abled, those who were divorced, remember? (laughs) Those who were in a mixed race marriage and certainly didn't serve LGBTQIA people. And the list goes on and on. This is what drives me crazy as I help care for so many churches that are facing ultimate decisions about their future. I hear in their stories and I see in their eyes a deep sorrow for what was. When I know in my bones that the past that they see in their mirror was distorted and they cannot acknowledge it. Not that I've got it perfectly figured out. Please don't hear me say that. But I find so few being able to say, oh, but those good old days are not meant for today. Of course, I feel comfortable preaching this here at First Community Church because I believe with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength that this community of faith, while not perfect, perhaps with a few blind spots, you know better than I, nonetheless has tried to recognize the past for what it is and then live differently and boldly into the future based on that wisdom. You have made it clear that so many, churches, so many of the things that other churches are obsessed with are not the gospel mandate. And that's what Jesus calls us, and that what Jesus calls us to is less about power and prestige and more about radical justice, solidarity with the oppressed, and transformative service to and alongside those in need who are God's people. Serving as a regional minister during and coming out of the years we now know as the COVID era, I have tried my best to help congregational leaders know as pastorally as I possibly can that the troubles they are now facing were generations in the making and not to be laid solely at the feet of the extreme health precautions we had to institute because it was a global pandemic. I remind these leaders to notice that at the very same time, wow, what a, what a parallel in history, we were facing that we were facing this historic disease, we were also faced once again with the wretched history of institutional racism and white supremacy in the murder of George Floyd on the streets of Minneapolis under the knees of those who were charged with protecting us. The racial justice uprisings that followed called those of us who are white Christians to a painfully honest confession that our churches have not been doing the deep and life-changing anti-racism, pro-reconciliation work that we needed to have been doing all along. And if a congregation didn't address this societal reckoning or ever mention it, or chastise their pastor for marching in a protest, or even praying about it on Sunday morning, the shame is on the church, not on them. 
We need to name that our failing to substantially allow ourselves to be challenged and changed from our racist ways is as much to blame for the decline of the church as was the pandemic, and I would say even more so. And the same could be said about the environmental crisis that we are experiencing in new and horrific ways, or about the political maelstrom that is in full and epic manifestation in our country, or about the fascist laws being passed in state house after state house, including the one just a few miles from us, that are punishing women for claiming their own bodies, and transgender persons, especially parents and children alike, trying to make the wisest decision for their own family, and thoughtful teachers who know how to teach history for those living their truth. So let me say this more clearly. Yeah, more clearly. <laughs> there is a storyline that is being promulgated that the decline of the white mainline Protestant church is to be blamed entirely on those of us who preach and teach and live social justice and all those things that go with that. In, when in fact, it is a distorted reality that is intentionally and I believe malevolently posed as truth. It is a lie and we have to name it. And those of us like First Community Church who read the writing on the rearview mirror need to name it as a lie. We preach the gospel of Christ and Christ alone. All we need is to make sure our whole purpose is to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and our neighbor as ourselves, like, like you do so well. Christ calls us to challenge the kingdoms of this world so that the kingdoms can flourish as God and Christ intended. Don't look to the world for validation because the kingdom is within and among us already. Yes, my friends, the vines need to be pruned and pruned significantly. But if it means that those who remain produce more and better fruit for those who will finally be able to live honestly, safely, and fully in the kingdom of God, we will have been faithful to our calling as church. And may it be so. Amen and amen.